we were generating about 90% of our leads every month from the blog, just from content that was published in the past. So we were focusing all of our efforts on creating new content every month, but 90% of the value was driven from content we had written in previous months, months ago, years ago. Um, And so we, we were like, okay, well, what do we do with this? It seems like there's something's right right here. Ground Up, Episode 2. Pam Vaughn remembers a time when the HubSpot blog wasn't even generating 1 million views in a year. Sure, for many companies, that legitimately classifies as a first-world problem. But for a public tech giant as ubiquitous as HubSpot now is, whose blog now generates over 4 million visits in a month, it sounds like ancient history. It was actually nine years ago, to be exact. HubSpot has grown a lot since then, and Pam has been there for just about all of it. Starting as a writer for the HubSpot blog back in 2008, Pam's career trajectory at HubSpot has evolved along with the organization's growth curve. Once focused on content and top of funnel acquisition, she's now focused on growing HubSpot's freemium model and overall web optimization. I recently caught up with Pam to talk about HubSpot's approach to growth and optimization, as well as take a trip down memory lane to get her take on how this all happened. So you and I have known each other probably for five years six years uh, since I started at Impact, which uh, was a HubSpot partner or is a HubSpot partner agency. And you were on the content team. But mm-hmm. um, so I was thinking about that. I was like, so it was five years. And then I, so I went on your LinkedIn and I was like, how long has Pam been at HubSpot? And so mm-hmm. 2008, is that right? Yeah. So it's just like nine years last month. So coming up on 10 years, like what is, what is that like to, I mean, that's amazing, right? That's an amazing. I know it's nuts, right? Ten, it's, ten crazy. Years. it's crazy. It's crazy. Cause I, I don't feel like it's been that long. I mean, I don't know why it's just, uh, you know, I'm like, holy crap, nine years. I, I mean, it just, it seems to have flown by. And I think it's just, I think that's, that's probably one of the reasons that I've been at HubSpot for nine years. It's just, it's flown by because, it's been, it stimulated me the whole time, you know, so much has changed that there's just been always so much to do and so many opportunities to grow within the company. So I think that's probably why it doesn't actually feel like nine years to me. Yeah, you said, yeah, you said it doesn't feel it, but I'm going to give you some reminders that might make it feel like it's been nine years. <laughs> Cause I was like, how many things, like you mentioned, like the company itself obviously has grown like tremendously gone public, uh, the product has evolved, obviously grown headcount wise. Uh, mm-hmm. but like in ju- just in like, uh, mar- marketing technology and even just technology in general, 2008, the iPhone was like a year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twitter was two years old. Mm-hmm. Facebook had just expanded beyond colleges to like anyone with a registered email address. I think like a year and a half or two years prior. There were no tablets. Uh, live streaming wasn't like a thing where you could just take your, you know, year old phone out and do like podcasting, (laughs) all that kind of stuff. So like the, is like the evolution of marketing technology and all that kind of stuff that's made marketing, um, 
easier in some ways and like made it evolve in so many ways that must just be crazy to look back at i would think like, it is yeah all those years and, and how like the channels and, and all that have changed too so if uh if it didn't feel like a long time before thinking back to the <laughs> iphone only being a year old uh m- must must do that for you yeah so, definitely uh, i don't even think i ha- i didn't even have an iphone until like i think like the four came out so <laughs> I, yeah, I was I was a late adopter too uh and you told me it's a story once that I thought would be fun to tell here too like you didn't you turn down HubSpot like the first time <laughs> that you I think you were offered a job by Mike Volpe yeah yeah so um so I had so I joined Twitter like when it first started and it was kind of cool at the time because only it was like only marketing executives and stuff were on it because they were just like oh how do I how do we use this and so I was able to kind of network with some people that probably I wouldn't have had access to otherwise. And one of them was Mike Volpe. And so we used to go to tweet ups, you know, which tweet was, ups. Was, a, was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was, you know, still in college at the time. I graduated in 2008. And while I was, I think during my senior year, Volpe kind of reached out to me over Facebook and, you know, essentially tried to recruit me to come work at HubSpot. And, you know, HubSpot was founded in 2006. So I didn't really know much about what the company was. And at the time, I was going to school for public relations. And, you know, all of our professors said that the best first job at a college was um, just at an agency, um, getting exposure to lots of different types of clients and, and things like that. So, when he reached out to me and, um, you know, asked me to come work at HubSpot, I was like, I was like, no, thanks. <laughs> like, I need to go work at an agency. Thanks, but no thanks. Um, and so, yeah, so I did the agency thing for a little bit. It wasn't really for me. Um, and so I kind of reached back out to Volpe over Facebook and said, hey, like, I'm, you know, looking to make a change and wondering if you have any openings still at HubSpot. And he was like, oh, actually, we decided to um, take our PR in-house. So they were using an agency before, um, and we need someone to manage it. So why don't you come do that? So that's kind of how I started. So I was only, uh, I started in September of 2008. So it was not that much longer after I graduated and then, that I, I joined. Yeah. And then PR, obviously in inbound marketing terms quickly evolved into like content blog writing yeah. and, and a lot of what drove HubSpot, right. In those early days. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I um, I kind of quickly realized that even even I kind of always thought that I was better suited for like in-house PR work, and then I started working at HubSpot and realized that I just didn't really care very much for PR in general. But at the time, like the what, the reason I went into it was because I knew I loved to write, and I thought public relations public relations was a you know a good a good avenue for that, and um, and so then in my role doing PR. I kind of wrote our um, company news blog, kind of separate than our marketing and sales blogs, but um, it was a it was a very you know PR based. We were you know writing about things happening at the company and announcements and things like that. And I just learned that I loved that part of my job more so than anything else. And so I, I basically made my way over to the marketing blog and you know doing content marketing. But at the time in college, you know, content marketing wasn't really an established thing yet, so you know, we, it wasn't like I could have chosen that right off the bat, just kind of evolved into that. Yeah. I was going to say, was there like a clear transition or did you have to be convinced that your role was going to sort of evolve more into this content writing blog post, that kind of thing? Or, or was it more kind of seamless? It just naturally evolved into that. 
I think it just naturally evolved into that. Like I said, I, you know, I, I knew that the, the thing I loved most about what I was doing at HubSpot was the blog that I was writing and um, kind of learned that PR wasn't really my favorite thing. And so I found, saw that as an opportunity to kind of, you know, make a little bit of a shift and, um, and continue to work at HubSpot. So. And so like, it's easy now to look at the HubSpot blog. And I was talking to Carly the other day who, uh, uh, used to also work at Impact, but also ran the blog at HubSpot for a couple of years. And th- she told me like something like the number of, of visitors now on the HubSpot blog is somewhere hovers around like 4 million or something crazy like that. Yeah. So yeah. back in 08, 09, 2000, I mean, even after that, 2010, 2011, like what was it? Obviously it was much more modest back. Like what, what yeah. was like uh, in terms of just like the type of engagement you guys saw, like traffic, how much were you guys writing? Like what was it like back then? Yeah. Um, so I looked back and, um, so in the year, the whole entire year of 2008, we generated about 600,000 visits <laughs> throughout the whole, the course of the whole year. And so now that crazy number that you said that Carly mentioned is we generate 4.5 million visits every month. Wow. So things have changed, um, pretty, pretty drastically. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we were, we, it's interesting in terms of like what the output was, you know, the team was obviously like the blogging team. It wasn't, it was hardly even a team. It was really mostly one to two people um, with the, the rest of the marketing team contributed to the blog, but only one person was at the time I was hired was like responsible for it, but we were still creating like, I want to say like three or four blog posts a day, um, at that time, just because we had everyone on the team contributing. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how much they write a day now. I think it's more like two posts a day. I want to say, um, we've played around with volume over the years and trying to figure out what the right balance is. But how did that, how did that happen? Because, and I know like a lot of people are going to say, Oh, we just wrote quality content consistently. And obviously you guys had resources, right? Like a a well-funded tech startup, but it went beyond that because there's a lot of well-funded tech startups that write blogs. And was there something different like that you guys knew? Uh, I mean, some of it might've had to do with leadership and, and, and guys like Volpe and, and, and things like that. But was there, or, or was it just, sort of right place, right time. Like how, how did you guys end up becoming this industry standard uh, when it comes to like marketing content and just MarTech mm-hmm. blogs in general? I think we had a benefit of being kind of like uh, one of the first adopters of, of content marketing in our industry. So um, we probably, we, we, some of the benefits that we had were because of that. Um, but I can think back to like looking at, looking back at those traffic numbers and kind of remembering like, how did we, how did we grow? Um, the first couple years were very like flat in terms of traffic. Um, and then we started to focus more on generating, um, subscribers. So that was kind of the bit first big shift in terms of like our growth and, we, instead of focusing on just trying to generate leads from the blog, we, we made more of an effort on focusing the conversion on subscriber generation. And then we saw a huge, we basically doubled our number of subscribers um, between, I think, like 2012 and 2013. And then you can see like the correlation um, with traffic. So 
you know, with that growth, we saw all this traffic growth and we learned that that was a big, a big driver of, of the growth of the blog in general. Um, you know, and the idea being that like you, if you focus on generating subscribers, then those are the people that are going to come, come back time and time again to your content. And that first, you know, when you first publish a post, having like a, a good chunk of people come visit it right away really helps to contribute to the long-term growth too, because that, that traffic leads to, um, increased search rankings and, and that's kind of where your sustainable, um, blog traffic comes from. So that was a big lesson for us is, you know, before we really focused on lead conversion, really focusing on subscriber conversion, um, and, and that helping to grow our traffic too. That's interesting because obviously the organic search number is one that most, I mean, you know, people focus on subscribers, but the organic search number is obviously really attractive and holds, uh, a lot of attention too. But, uh, what's interesting is, you know, at least for, in in my experience, when you go in and look at like organic search traffic month over month, it it grows. But if you look at like the percent new in, in something like Google analytics or a tool like that, that's always really high. So like, it's hard to get those people to come back. Like a lot of people find those posts, but like you said, if you're, if you're not converting them into a subscriber, um, which might only happen at like two, three percent rate. But I mean, over time, um, over a year period or two years, all of a sudden you have like a really solid list of people that are coming back to your blog every, every time you're putting something yeah, out. So that's and really what, interesting. And what happens is those people there, they tend to be kind of your content evangelists and they will, they will share the stuff that they like in social media. And then that, you know, that grows your reach to new people. And so, you know, you can, if you get, you know, one of the, the key things to Google is if, uh, you know, if a piece of content starts to get a ton of traffic all at once, then it, you know, it's an indicator to them that maybe it's worth, um, you know, ranking. So whilst, and then, you know, and, and it's tricky because you need both like subscribers are, are great, but a lot of times they'll already be, um, be leads in your database. So in terms of net new lead generation, they don't really contribute a ton, but they kind of have this indirect effect where, their, you know, their traffic helps influence your search rank rankings, which is where, you know, all your new, new traffic is going to come from. Um, and then, you know, in social as well. And those are the people that you, you need to, to convert into new leads. Um, so you need both. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're not going to generate subscribers if traffic volume is not going up, at least at not the rate that you'll need. But uh, yeah, I'm sure at, by the time 2012 rolled around, HubSpot was doing enough volume too, that that was, that was a good bet. Um mm-hmm. So, and uh, like I would say, like around uh, maybe 2014 ish, 2015, like I, I started to notice uh, just as, you know, somebody uh, observing from the outside, uh, although a really interested party because I was part of a HubSpot partner at the time, that um, I remember Brian Balfour uh, sort of kind of took over this uh, growth leadership role with the sidekick team. I think it was called mm-hmm. sidekick at the time. Yep. It had changed from signals or whatever it was at the, at the beginning. Um, and I, and I remember like HubSpot started putting out a lot more content related to conversion rate optimization and like this really scientific approach to growth. And mm-hmm. it wasn't just predicated on, on content and, and content volume. And I think at a, at a certain scale, uh, like content and all that, it, it's always going to work, but I, I at a certain scale, I feel like this 
this uh you start to see diminishing returns in, in terms of like where like maybe like your company wants to be at and I, i'm curious like di- did there come a time where like did you notice like an opportunity uh that the opportunity for growth was evolving at hubspot and maybe you yeah. could you could see yourself evolving with it because obviously we were just talking about content and blogging um, that's not, uh, your role anymore at HubSpot. Like you've, you've grown into more of like a growth position, uh, website optimization and all that kind of stuff. So did you notice like an evolution take place where maybe you saw like, um, a really interesting opportunity to sort of like, uh, leverage all these people that were now coming to the website. And obviously there became a need to optimize for those people. Like, was there a period of time where, like the conversation started to shift to include more of that optimization piece too? Yeah. I mean, so for me, it was around 2014, like you said, we kind of started noticing that like traffic to the blog was kind of flattening out and, you know, we were like, okay, we need to grow the blog still. And what we're doing right now isn't going to do that. Um, You know, and the answer wasn't just, couldn't just be to scale our content output. I mean, content saturation was starting to be a really big thing because more and more people were adopting content marketing. And, you know, there's like crazy, like crazy statistics about how many blog posts are published every day. And there's a lot of noise. And so we knew we couldn't just scale our output to match the growth we wanted to achieve. Um, and so we kind of started to figure out what we, what we could do. And, um, I I kind of took to the data to figure out just what the story was on our on our blog at that point, and we realized that um, we were generating about ninety percent of our leads every month from the blog just from content that was published in the past. So we were focusing all of our efforts on creating new content every month, but ninety percent of the value was driven from content we had written in previous months, months ago, years ago. Um, And so we, we were like, okay, well, what do we do with this? It seems like there's something's not right here. And so I've kind of coined that this whole effort, um, historical optimization. And what we realized that we could do was identify those, um, those old posts that are generating the majority of our, of our leads and and the, and the fact of the matter was that it was coming from search. So these posts ranked really well in search. People still found them, you know, from their searches and figuring out like, okay, how can we get more traffic to those, to those posts um, that are converting well, A, and B, of the posts that are getting a lot of traffic, but not converting well, how can we increase the conversion rate on those posts? Um, so we had, you know, we launched this whole historical optimization effort. We realized that, um, you know, there were, there were definite ways that we could increase the conversion rate on those posts and we implemented those plays. And then for the posts that were ranking or that, um, were converting well, but not ranking well, we realized that we could go back and kind of update and republish those posts. Um, and they would increase in ranking. So, that was a big, that, that was huge for us. Um, we essentially ended up doubling the traffic and the leads from the posts that we optimized in those ways. And you could just see just over time, we just completely doubled our, our results. So you scaled back output 
and f- yeah. focused m- some of the efforts at least on optimizing these like heavy hitter old posts and ended up still uh, obviously having a big impact on traffic anyways. Even yeah, we, back output. I would say that we kept our output kind of flat, although I think that we did, depending on the post, we did save some time because we basically worked like two or three historical posts into our mix a week. And so rather than creating a brand new post, we would go back and optimize those old posts. And it was a win-win for, for everybody because it, it saved us a little bit of time in terms of content creation effort. We got more out of the posts, um, from, from a user perspective, like the posts that people were finding in search that were old were not as old as they were before. And so they were more valuable to, you know, to searchers. Um, Google loved it because we were, you know, improving the quality of the content that was in the search engine. Um, and so it was really just like a slam dunk across the board. Did this spark something for you in terms of like where you like your career trajectory or was there a website optimization team at the time? Like how did this, how did this all lead, I guess, to where you're at now? I know it's so interesting because I never thought that like I spent so much time in like spreadsheets and analyzing our data. And like I, I like hated math in high school. Like I didn't take a single like statistics course or or anything in college. And um, somehow I ended up being like in this analytical role. Um, I was basically as the, as the blogging team grew, um, I kind of had ex- developed an interest in analytics and optimi- optimization. Like I always was the one who did our monthly reporting. And so as the team grew, I kind of started doing more of that stuff and less just blogging. Um, and, you know, and we could afford to do that because we had more people on the writing side of things. But I was kind of just doing it on an island. Like I was on the blogging team, but just kind of doing this optimization stuff kind of on my own. And I didn't really have like a mentor. I didn't really have anyone to learn from. And so um, we kind of, uh, I'm trying to think of what it was, is our team's been around for two years now. So I guess in like 2015, near the end of 2015, um, we decided as a, just as a department that we would launch kind of like an optimization team. Um, and it was just a natural, like the, it was a natural next step for me. Um, and you know, I could, I could learn from others and, and collaborate with others. And so that's kind of how I evolved. So then that team formed it, like I said, at the end of 2015. Um, and it's evolved even since, since then, um, we were the optimization team and now we're the web strategy team. How was that? Yeah, you were telling me there's there's kind of like a couple different branches of it. How How is that like uh, growth team, optimization team? Like how are you guys structured? Yeah, so there's the the web strategy team, which is my team, um, are um, basically we're responsible for optimizing the website to increase um, both our free product sign-up conversions and our marketing qualified leads of like our paid products. Um, so we also do, we do some other things too. There's some business needs that we need to tend to on the website because we, we basically own the website. And obviously there's some things that we just need to do that aren't necessarily right. optimization focused. Like a new focused. feature or a new product yeah, or conferences exactly. coming up, stuff like that. Yeah. So there's some of those things, um, but we, you know, we do a lot of, tests on the website to optimize it for, you know, signups and qualified leads. 
And then we have another team, the, they're called the growth team. And they're more focused on generating um, product qualified leads and upgrades from the free products um, within the app. So basically anyone who's already a free user who's in the app, um, how do we get more of those people to either upgrade or, um, or buy, buy add-ons or things like that. So it's like, kind of within the app is their their role and ours is on the website. So you guys are really trying to fill that freemium, uh, for lack of a better word, that uh, fill that funnel up and then they sort of optimize, get, you know, toward activation or upgrades mm-hmm. or usage and engagement and things like that. Exactly. Yep. That's super interesting. So in, in terms of like, so your team, so the web strategy team, um, do you guys have to battle for resources in terms of like front end and stuff or like, how are you guys structured? Like, do you have like your own dedicated front end design and all that kind of stuff, which makes it, you know, enables you guys to move quicker? Yeah, we used to have to battle for it. <laughs> that's always, so that's the first, I think the first year that the team was, you know, existed was, was pretty tough. We were, we were pitch. finding that we, <laughs> every single time. Yeah. We kind of had to like prove our worth cause you we were a completely brand new team. Um, so we hadn't really figured out the best way to structure and get those resources and we're small. So there are, um, so I do conversion optimization and copywriting on the website. There's another guy on my team, um, who also does that same role. It's just basically two of us. We have a UX designer who's on our team. Um, and we have an analytics, LA analytics guy, and that's basically it. And then we have our manager. So, um, we're a relatively small team, um, and we don't have like we don't have a designers or developers on our team, but we now kind of have a dotted line to our web team and creative team that um, there are a couple designers and a couple developers that are basically dedicated only to doing projects related to the website. So at first we didn't have that and there it was a, it was really tough getting stuff done and um by the time we would launch a test it would like be irrelevant from the time that we had come up with the idea for the test and that totally changed in the in the last year and now we are really efficient and um we have the resources we need. We did a big redesign um around this time last year at Inbound um of a lot of the core pages on the website and kind of restructured things. And that was really successful. And I think that kind of uh, justified our our worth. And, you know, with the uh, the marketing leadership reacted accordingly and, and gave us the resources that we needed to be successful. So how does the uh, and I've I've been on and, you know, and led teams like this to know that it's 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 never uh, an exact science every single time out. But what is like the typical, I guess, process look like for idea, uh, you know, like the concept, um, Mm -hmm. you know, probably recognizing something, you know, maybe your analyst recognizes something in terms of Mm -hmm. like visit to sign up on a certain page or something like that to actually, uh, you know, getting, um, you know, copy or treatments together, uh, the actual test setup, front end, anything that like, how, how, like, what does that look like? And like, how long does that usually take you guys? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's basically we're trying to identify where the opportunity is, right? So it could be anything from like what you just said, either we, you know, we're constantly monitoring our analytics and we see that, you know, this page is underperforming compared to others. Um, We'll also do 
user testing and research, and we find a lot of opportunity through that um, historical experience. Also, you know, what the goals are at the time can really drive what we decide to take on. And so, like I said, we're a pretty small team, so we have to be pretty uh, strict about what tests and what projects we take on. Um, and so um, we use a system called Pi to basically prioritize the tests that we do take on. Um, and so it stands for potential, importance, and ease. And so every kind of idea that we have for a test or a project, we, we kind of pie score it. Um, and, and basically you give each of those three things a score, from, depending on what you want to do. It could be like either one to five or one to ten. And then, um, you know, ten being the best. So if, if something has a ton of potential and we, and we analyze that through historical data or, or whatever we can to figure out what the potential could be, um, we give that a high score. Um, importance is like, how important is this for the business? So that, you know, that could be something like, oh, we're launching a free product. Like we, we really need to do this on the website. Um, so that would get a high score. And then ease is like, how easy is it for us to get this thing done? Um, and that could, that could be impacted by, are there going to be a lot of stakeholders involved that, you, you know, will will slow things down? Do you need a lot of developer time or designer time? Um, you know, things like that will factor into it. And then you basically average the, the three scores and then the highest scores, you know, bubble up as the higher priority projects. Um, and then the other thing about coming up with ideas for tests is we've learned this. I feel like this is one of the biggest learnings I think we've had over the past year is we were finding that once we started to get the resources that we needed to run tests, we were able to get a lot more tests going and run. And we found though that a lot of them were inconclusive or just, you know, we weren't having a lot of winning variants. And we started to get better about using like user testing and other research to come up with insights to test versus just saying like, oh, let's try this or let's try this. We were basically you know, we were learning that when we ran a test that was based on like an insight that we had through research or, or something that our test just became a lot more impactful. And I have an example of that if you're curious um, yeah, of definitely. what I mean. So we, we've done, we started doing a lot more user testing, like I said, and just figuring out like a, on a page that was underperforming, trying to like diagnose why. And so we did, we put um, exit intent surveys um, and, uh, on our CRM page. And we also mined all of the chat transcripts that we had from that page of people that were chatting with, with us on that page and just kind of looking through them to see what, what, what their questions were. And we found that a lot of people were asking, like, what's the catch with the free CRM? Like, is it really free? Like, we don't actually believe you. Like, there's got to be something, some kind of catch. And we had to explain, like, well, no, it's actually, it's totally free. Like, we're, there's not really a catch. Um, and so, but we found that that came up a ton. And one of the things I noticed was that on our CRM page, the CTA copy was get started free. And that's just kind of what we use across the board. And I was like, you know what, like get started free kind of implies that you can only get started for free and that there is a catch, right? Because like, okay, you can get started for free, but down the line, we're going to make you pay, pay us money. Um, so I ran a test where I changed that button copy from get started free to just get free CRM. 
Um, and we saw like a 15% increase in conversion rate from that. So like that was based on this insight that, you know, people are skeptical that the CRM is actually free. Um, and I think that's why like that test performed so well was because we, we knew exactly what to test there. Um, so that's, that's super interesting. Know. Yeah. And, yeah. And in my experience too, those, those type of surveys are, are super helpful. Um, but you have to, you have to collect enough responses too, because I run mm-hmm. a few of those, especially like the closer you get to like pricing or, or signing up, like so many people are going to complain about, um, cost. Um, now granted in this case, when it was a freemium product, you didn't really have that issue. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like con- collecting enough responses and you start to see those like common themes. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's super interesting and, and a great approach to testing something. So that, that's, uh, so, so did that, was that something that was applied because I'm, cause like you said, get started free is something that you guys sort of used widely throughout the site. Did, did that change? Was that made in, and tested and made in isolation just to that one area or did you guys no. sort of use that elsewhere too? Yeah, we basically just decided, um, we haven't, there's a couple of things that have prevented us from completely rolling it out across the board because we had like other tests running on other pages and, and stuff like that. But, um, we ended up changing like anywhere where we were promoting the CRM as like the free sign up. We changed the button copy just across the board. I mean, it wasn't worth testing them everywhere else because we just figured that the logic would apply everywhere else. Um, so we have, you know, we have, specific feature pages that are related to, to CRM features um, that we that we just made the switch on. And then also the pricing page, we made that switch. Um, and we also then, like it, we just redesigned our pricing page uh, a few weeks ago. And we included like a, a section on the page about addressing the question of like, is it really free? Because we knew that people constantly brought it up. So um, you know, and we didn't, we didn't necessarily test that. We just kind of redesigned the page, but we used that insight to inform, you know, the changes that we made. So what's like the, uh, in terms of like a lesson from that. So it sounds like it's, it, it sort of allowed you guys to shift your focus from, I guess, thinking more just about, uh, or not just about like the quantitative side of things. Like it's really easy to get into the spreadsheets or look at the, the backend dashboards and see like, Oh, the visit to sign up rate is down here. Like, let's try this. But then you guys started mis- mixing in the qualitative side too, getting like the user reviews, yeah. uh, and, and sort of combining the two. And, uh, that seems like it's been an approach that works for you guys. So was that like yeah. the lesson to incorporate both? Yeah, totally. We weren't doing enough of that before, just the qualitative user research stuff. And um, I think it's really changed our approach. And also just, I think, um, you know, just the whole lesson of basing your testing off of insights that you have, whether or not they're, they come from qualitative feedback or quantitative is just making sure there's something there that makes the test worthwhile that makes you believe that what you're doing will actually manipulate the results rather than just like oh let's just test blue versus green ctas and we don't really have any basis for why blue is better you know (laughs) right so it's there there are so many things that you can test uh which is what i've always seen like there's it seems like infinite treatments of things that you can't test right button copy design on the page uh, location of the button. Uh, w- there's so many things that you can't test, but the the approach that you guys take, which is um, sort of like a getting idea on the quantitative side, like what's working, what's not, and then mm-hmm. using like the qualitative side to sort of like prove out maybe like where to zero in on. 
that seems like it's it I mean you're probably still gonna be wrong more times than you're right, but at least like yeah. that gives you probably like a uh helps you like zero in on the uh on the area, right? Of opportunity probably much much better than if you just sort of took a more like by the gut approach to it, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Um that's what we found. And how do you guys like how do you guys define like winning and losing tests? Because some some people it seems like they just test for improvement. Whereas other people, they want to see like a, a 5% lift, you know, they want to see the statistical significance. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you guys like navigate that? Like what defines winning and losing for you? Yeah, we use statistical significance. Um, you know, sometimes a test is inconclusive and, it, you know, you need to run it a little bit longer just because of the, you know, the amount of traffic that page is getting or, and, and sometimes no matter how long you run, it's just going to be in, like not statistically significant, which means it's, you know, pretty much inconclusive. And we do basically, you know, there's other factors too that we might incorporate into it um, in terms of like evaluating what, what the right winner is for a test. And, you know, that might be just user experience or just what, what the overall business goal is, but yeah, we pretty much default to statistical significance when we're evaluating our test results. And like, I guess out of, out of the, all the tests that you run, like how, how often would you say like out of 10, are you, are you getting one that's, that's a clear winner? Oh, geez. Like I said, it was worse before. Um, we've gotten better, but I think like, I want to say, Uh, I don't know if it's more often than not. That's a good question. You stumped me because I feel like it may, I feel like it's at least 50, 50, um, which would be amazing. Yeah, I I think it is, but but it's hard to tell because like I said, we do, we don't just do tests. We do like just full fudge redesigns and different projects that aren't necessarily testing. So, um, it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, fifty-fifty would be amazing. I think what it, what what an answer like that. What I was going for, it just like humanizes uh, the approach for other people. Like you're you're not going to get um, e- even with the most well-informed test, uh, you, you're not going to get you know ninety percent hit rates or, or success rates on these tests. I think it's about yeah. about the reps and about. Um, probably moving and adjusting really quickly. Like I imagine like you guys, because the volume of traffic you're seeing to your test is so high, you guys could probably cap a test in what a, a day, a couple days. Well, we, we always, I think we always run a test for at least two weeks just because oh, wow. there like could be, yeah. Yeah, well, it just, it could be, if you don't, I think it's just kind of like the, the rule of thumb for optimization is there could be like, event-based or time-based things associated with that. So you never want to run a test for less than two weeks um, just to rule out that there's any kind of like seasonality or weird out, like, you know, timing-based out outcomes there. Um, but yeah, we can, we can pretty much iterate pretty quickly. Um, and sometimes we'll run a test for a couple weeks. We'll see what the results are and then um, we'll, we'll iterate on it. <laughs> and then like hold, hold on john this is really annoying for you but my son is trying to get in the house <laughs> <laughs> no this is this is great. this makes it real <laughs> hey i'm it <laughs> i'm gonna finish this up in a few minutes okay so just hang out can we, Sorry, can we please just leave that in there because uh, <laughs> the real is over. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.